standing. Let me explain to you why I had to stand for the Apostles' Creed. It's because the Apostles' Creed is our affirmation of faith. It is a pledge. It is a stronger and deeper pledge than the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag. And uh, whenever we say the Apostles' Creed, we should always stand when we say it. Because we are uh, proclaiming our allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God above every other power and every other authority that exists. And to sit while we're saying the mission of faith is like taking a knee during the national anthem. And so that's why I had you stand. And that's why we're going through the Apostles' Creed right now, is so that we will understand uh, what we're saying. Well, this is one of those things that I'm sure many of you have said it since before you can remember that you said the Apostles' Creed. And, and yet so many people, we can say words, and that's all they are. And we never stop and think. This is the distillation of the essence of the Christian faith. These are those essentials that we should all abide by if we call ourselves Christians. And so uh, we looked at the first one this past week, whenever we said uh, the first part, when it said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth. And so today we look at the second part of that, where we say, and in his only son, Jesus Christ, our savior and our Lord. Not quite those words, but uh, that covered all four parts of it. And uh, I want to begin by reading out of Matthew, the 16th chapter, the 13th through the 17th verses. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. For ever since Jesus first came on the scene, People have had different opinions as to who he is. And uh, if you would go online and just ask, who is Jesus? Some of the answers that you get for the question uh, would be things like uh, a good man, the son of God, a prophet, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of God's law, the embodiment of God's love a reincarnated spirit master, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, Savior, a first century wise man, a man just like any other man, 
king of kings, a misunderstood teacher, the Lord of the universe, a deluded religious leader, son of man, or even a fabrication of the early church. You can find all those if you just start looking. And the thing is, after 2,000 years, people are still divided about who Jesus is. But you know, as we look at this conversation back at Caesarea Philippi, we discover we don't have to figure out who Jesus is. He's made it clear. And we affirm when we stand and say the Apostles' Creed, just exactly what Simon Peter said whenever he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I want you to notice that whenever Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, listen what Jesus said. He said, basically, bless you, Peter. You nailed it. You got it. You got it, man. This is who he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. From the time that Peter said that to this, Christians have affirmed their faith in Jesus with these words from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And so, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the creed is divided basically into three parts. It's divided along the lines of the Trinity. Have you ever noticed that? The first section is devoted to the Father. The second section is devoted to the Son. And the third section is devoted to the Holy Spirit. And of the 105 words in the creed, I counted them the way, the way that we say it. 105 words, 65 occur in the section relating to Jesus. And that tells us something important. The Christian faith is all about Jesus. He is the heart. He is the core. He is the touchstone of all that we believe. You can be mistaken on some secondary issues and still be a Christian. But if you are wrong about Jesus, you are wrong in the worst possible way. Our faith in Jesus must be more than just an emotional experience of having Jesus in my heart. Our faith must rest on the revealed truth about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Now, you know, these days we'll hear people, whenever they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You don't know what they mean when they're saying that, do you? Some people mean they believe he existed. Some people will say they believe that he existed and that he performed miracles. Uh, and uh, they may even say he rose from the dead. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Believing the things about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Just look, the people that put Jesus on that cross, 
They believed in his existence or they wouldn't have gone to all the trouble that they went to, would they? They believed in his miracles. They believed a lot about him. Some of them recognized him as a teacher. And yet still, that did not make them a Christian. They were still enemies of Christ and the cross, even though they believed in him. As it says in the book of James, where it says, you say you believe in God, you, do, you believe God is one, you do well. The devils believe also and tremble. Just stop and think about it. Demons believe more about Jesus than a lot of people that say, I believe in Jesus. It's not just saying you believe in his existence, in existence or believing some things about him. That's not what we're talking about when we say belief. It goes deeper than that. And so that's what we're wanting to uh, look at today. If we take this clause from the Apostles' Creed and we examine it, we see it contains four very important, very, very vital statements. We are saying when we stand and say the Apostles' Creed, first of all, I believe in Jesus. Then we're saying, I believe he is the Christ. And then we're saying, I believe he is God's only son. And then we're saying, I believe he is the Lord. Each one of these statements is power packed. It is essential to the wholeness of the Christian faith. J.I. Packer notes that when the creed calls God the maker of heaven and earth, it parts company with Hinduism and by extension with all the other Eastern religions. When it declares that Jesus is the Christ, God's only son and our Lord, it parts company with Islam and with Judaism. This claim for Jesus makes Christianity utterly unique. These titles were commonly used by the early church to describe their faith. Sometimes they use the familiar symbol of uh, the fish. Uh, with the Greek, in, 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 the, in, in Greek, the word fish is ichthus, I-X-T-H-U-S, if you're going to spell it in uh, our alphabet. Now, those letters were an acronym or an acrostic for the four of the words that we find here in the creed. The letter I is the first letter of Jesus in Greek, Yesu. The letter X is the first letter of Christ in Greek, which is Christos. The letters TH stand for the first letter of God in Greek, which is Theos. The letter U is the first letter of Son in Greek, which is Weos. And the letter S is the first letter of Savior in Greek, which is Soteros. So the word Ichthus and by extension, the fish symbol stood as a shorthand for Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. So who is he? In the Apostles' Creed, we affirm precisely who he is. First of all, he is the Savior, 
The name Jesus means God saves. Scholars tell us that it was actually a very common name among the Jews in the first century. There were at least 10 other men named Jesus who lived in Judea uh, at the same time as our Lord. There were at least five Jewish high priests who were named Jesus. The name itself is the Greek version of the Old Testament Joshua, the Hebrew Yeshua. It speaks of the fact that God has entered the human race on a rescue mission from heaven. And that's why the angel told Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When we say we believe in Jesus, we mean that he was fully human and yet fully divine. A man like us and yet a man who possessed the very attributes of God himself. He was the God man and he came to save us from our sins. Next, he is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know whenever I was a kid, a lot of people would say that was his last name. Well, he didn't grow up in the Christ family. Christ is not a family name. It is a title. To be precise, we should be calling him Jesus the Christ. When you see President Trump on TV, you know that president is not his first name. It's his title. It's the name for the office that he holds. Uh, in the same way, the term Christ describes one of Jesus' divinely appointed titles. The word Christ comes from a Greek word, the word Christos, that itself comes from a Hebrew word, which means the anointed one. We often translate it as Messiah. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed when they formally began their service of God. The anointing was a sign that God had called them to their position. To call Jesus the Christ means that he is the one the only one whom God promised to send to deliver Israel and to bring salvation to the world. At Christmas time, when we sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, we're referring to this truth. A river of connected history flows all the way from the book of Genesis on through the book of Revelation spanning thousands of years and hundreds of generations. Those who believe the Bible have long argued that although it contains 66 books written by many different people over 1,500 years, it has but one message, God's plan to bring salvation to the world through Jesus Christ. In one way or another, everything in the Bible fits around that great theme. In the Old Testament, we see the anticipation of his coming and the promise of his coming. In the Gospels, we see the incarnation of Jesus. He has come. 
In the book of Acts, we see the proclamation of who he is and what he has done. And in the epistles, we see an explanation of what it's all about. And in Revelation, we see the consummation of God's plan. The Old Testament says he is coming. The gospels say he is here. The book of Acts say he's come. And the epistles say he is Lord. And Revelation says he's coming again really soon. The Old Testament contains many promises about his coming. In Genesis, we see, among other things, he will be the seed of the woman. He will be a descendant of Shem, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac. And uh, he will be a descendant of Jacob and come from the tribe of Judah. And then in 2 Samuel, we see he'll be a descendant of David. And then in Isaiah, we see he'll be born of a virgin. And we see how he will die on the cross for our sins. And we also see that again in Psalms. And then in Micah, we see he will be born in Bethlehem. So who would fit all those qualifications Many people could fit a few in the first list, but only one person in history fits them all and has ever fit them all, and that is Jesus the Christ. And so we say to our Jewish friends, with love and with respect, the one for whom you are waiting has already come to earth. He came 2,000 years ago. He is your Messiah He's our Messiah, and his name is Jesus. To say that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the one sent from God to bring God to us and to bring us to God. Third, he is God's only son. Now, this phrase speaks of his relationship to God the Father. The little world only tells us something crucial about our Lord. In the King James translation of John 3.16, we're told that God so loved the world that he sent his what? Only begotten son. And what does that phrase only begotten mean? It comes from the Greek word monogenos. The mono part means one or only, as in the word monologue, where one person is speaking. Uh, one, uh, and then uh, the Guinness part relates to the same English words as gene, genetics, and gender. When both parts are put together, means only begotten, one and only, or absolutely unique, or one of a kind, and there can be never be another of the same kind. The term stresses the absolutely unique nature of Jesus. Because the Son shares the same nature as the Father, Jesus could say, I and the Father am one. His Jewish hearers, well, they understood that he was claiming equality with God. To call Jesus the only uh, Son of God means that he shares 
the same essential nature as the Father. And from this truth comes the doctrine of the Trinity, one God eternally existing in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One church father explained the relationship between the Father and Son in this way. As the spring is not the stream, and the stream is not the spring, yet the same water flows through both. Even so, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but they share the same divine nature. <coughs> the Nicene Creed says it very succinctly when it calls Jesus Christ very God of very God. He is not similar to God. To call him God's only son means that he is God the son and thus worthy of the same worship, adoration, praise, reverence that we give to God the father. Many people today, including some theologians and many liberal Christians, fight against this truth. They want a Christ who is somehow divine, but is not truly God. They want a Jesus who is a good role model, but they do not want him as their God. A good man? Yeah, they'll buy that. The Son of God from heaven can't stomach it. But that is not possible if we take the Bible seriously. C.S. Lewis explained our op options uh, this way. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying <clears throat> the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Finally, he is our Lord. The final title given to Jesus relates to you and to me. He is our Lord. The Greek word is kurios. And this word occurs many times in the New Testament. And it was also common throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, its basic meaning is absolute ruler. To call Jesus Lord means that he is sovereign over the entire universe. 
And he has the right of sovereign rule over me and over you. Romans 10, 9 uh, says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice how simple that phrase is. Jesus is Lord. It's easy to say those three words, isn't it? To confess with the mouth, though, means a whole lot more than simply saying the words. It means to agree from the heart that you believe what you are saying. In order to understand this properly, we need a bit of background on how the Romans ruled uh, their vast empire. Because the empire stretched from Europe into the Middle East and across the northern coast of Africa, it encompassed many provinces and thus included many local religions. Scholars speak of the mystery religions that were found in many parts of the empire. Each of the various religions had its own code of conduct, its own sacred scriptures, its own patterns of worship, its own pattern of sacrifice and sacred rites, priesthood, and so on. Because these religions tended to keep people pacified, the Romans left them alone as much as possible. Rome required only that taxes be paid and that everyone be required to say, Caesar is Lord. That's all. Just say those three simple words. Caesar is Lord. Say Caesar is Lord and then go about your own business. Affirm that Caesar was sovereign and then follow whatever religion suited you. For many people in the empire, this was no big deal. Not a burden at all. But Christians steadfastly refused to say Caesar is Lord. They simply wouldn't say it. How could they say Caesar is Lord when it would mean renouncing their Lord Jesus? When their faith taught them that Jesus is Lord and they believed from their bottom of from the bottom of their hearts and they had pledged their allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. They could not and would not deny the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why during the days of persecution, Christians were slaughtered, murdered by the thousands, crucified, burned at the stake, run through with the sword, and thrown to wild animals. This was the great dividing line that Christians refused to cross. Chuck Colson notes that in the first century, if you stood in a public gathering and cried out, Jesus is God, no one would be upset. But if you shouted, Jesus is Lord, you'd start a riot. Let us be crystal clear about this. Rome did not persecute Christians because they believed in the deity of Christ or that Jesus was the promised Messiah, or that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Rome did not kill Christians because 
they said Jesus was the only way of salvation. Those were, quote, religious beliefs. And that didn't threaten the state. But when Christians declared Jesus Christ is our Lord and there is no other, that was a direct attack on Caesar worship and thus punishable by death. That is why the Lordship of Jesus matters so much. To call him Lord means that we surrender all we have to him and we follow him gladly wherever he leads, whatever it costs. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.